in and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study them hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone The guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell Hello, everyone. My name is Leonie Hinks, and welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. Our guest this week is Mark Canizaro, the president of the CSA, which is the union that represents all the New York City principals administrators. But first, some local news. The Omicron surge is still with us, though it seems to be diminishing a bit. A week ago, it was over 34% positivity rate citywide, but as of Friday, had fallen to 28%, still very high. Thousands of students and teachers are testing positive, and attendance on Friday was only about 70%. Roughly 250,000 to 300,000 kids have been staying out of school, and nearly half of all students are absent in the high schools with the highest levels of poverty. On Tuesday, there was a big student walkout with thousands of students protesting the unsafe conditions and asking for remote option during the surge, leading to similar walkouts in Boston, San Francisco, and elsewhere. This, plus the low rates of attendance, seemed to alter Mayor Eric Adams' viewpoint during the week. He started out by saying there would be no remote option, but by Thursday, he and the chancellor said they were considering offering one and were engaged with the teachers' union on how to make this happen. But then on Friday, Adams switched back again and said there would be no remote option and that he was misunderstood. On Wednesday, an email plus updated new guidance was sent to principals about which students are entitled to remote learning and who are not. It's confusing. I don't really understand this, but but I'm going to ask my guest about this very soon. To make things even more complicated, there was a spate of news stories on Friday about a week-long or more outage of the student information systems used by many schools called Schedula and Pupil Path, which seems to have been caused by a security incident, according to the company. But now I'd like to turn to my special guest, Mark Canizaro, president of the Council of School Administrators, which represents all the principals and school administrators here in New York City. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Nice to be here. So obviously, the biggest story right now is what's happening with the Omicron surge, the thousands of cases among teachers and students and the low attendance rates. Can you explain the new updated guidance sent to principals by DOE on remote instruction? It seems to say that students at home who have tested positive for COVID are entitled to some sort of instruction through office hours plus assigned homework. Others are not, although if teachers are willing and their supervisor proves that they can provide this asynchronous instruction and will pay, be paid for it. Have I interpreted this correctly? I think so. I, I mean, I, I kind of don't know a heck of a lot more than you do about this. But what I can tell you is um, this office hours and asynchronous instruction agreement went back to the summertime when uh, we were going into September knowing we, we might have some classroom closures, school closures, and partial partial classroom closures, where um, teachers were being given uh, per session funding to provide additional instruction to the students that needed to be home due to the coronavirus or quarantining. 
Now, since the guidance has changed and students really aren't quarantining any longer, they updated the guidance. In addition, between the period of September to today, there were obviously other children at home seeking to gain some type of instruction while they weren't in, in school and they were asking their teachers and some of them were providing it. Um, but the fact is they really weren't supposed to be. So I think this was clarifying saying, hey, if you would like to provide instruction for students that particularly don't qualify based on the guidance, you may do so if you wish to. What's not clear, and it's, it's not clear to me, and, and I think principals are going to need to know this, if additional instruction is being provided and additional hours are being used that the teachers be compensated for, will the uh, schools and the, and the principals be given additional budget support to fund this? And, and that's not clear right now, and that's concerning. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, if it's coming out of schools' budgets, which are already pretty much committed and paired to the bone, I don't know how uh, teachers can be paid for something like this. So it seems to me that if this guidance is going to be real, it's got to be paid for by DOE centrally. And after all, they did receive billions of dollars in additional state and federal funds to accommodate or enhance learning during COVID shutdown. So it seems to me that they should be able to pay. But these these office hours, I mean, it's not is it is it teachers are supposed to make appointments with students to see them individually who may be home either because they're ill or because they uh, their parents think that sending them to school is unsafe or are they supposed to meet in small groups? Do you know which is? Which well, is- I, I think it depends on on how many students are home, um, you know, based on a coronavirus um, for a coronavirus related reason. So mm-hmm. whichever students are, are home because of that. So at times it was a partial classroom closure or a full classroom closure. Then you could meet with several students at, at one time. But right now it seems to be fewer students actually, um, you know, at home for those coronavirus related reasons. So now the, the groups would be potentially smaller unless, in fact, they were allowing um, other students to join. So there were also updated rules on attendance that were sent Um to principals. Can you explain those? Um, again, I, I, I'm, I'm sadly, I, I know little more than you do about this, but um, it, it, this is a, another thing that has come out of, um, you know, s- sort of necessity that when students have been home and logging on to synchronous or asynchronous instruction, uh, whatever could be provided at the time, um, there was no way to to mark them present yet some people some principals and some schools were doing what they could to give these students credit for attending and getting some work done so i think this was just simply a matter of 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 formalizing what needed to be done for students who were at home but uh logging in and and providing some work and giving them credit for for attendance and and there will be a uh, a code that that states that they were actually at home doing the work rather than in school. So there will be a separate code so that we will eventually know the public will be informed as to what the actual in-school attendance is, as opposed to this new uh, allowance of attendance for kids who are at home and possibly doing some work and, 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 and logging in occasionally. Well, I, I guess you'd have to ask the city whether they're going to make that public or not and let everyone know. I guess it, it should be public information, but whether or not that will be released and how quickly it will be released, I don't know. 
Yeah, the DOE has not been known for its transparency under our previous two mayors, and we really don't know yet under our new mayor how transparent they're going to be. In general, what do you think of the the current safety protocols in schools? First of all, is there enough testing? Um, The DOE and and the teachers union came to an agreement that the amount of testing now um, of a random sample of students um, would be doubled. And many people assumed that meant 20% of all students and staff. But then it turned out that in many schools, it's still less than 5%. And that's because in their calculations of how many kids to be tested, they are only counting the unvaccinated percentage of kids, even though both vaccinated and unvaccinated kids may be in the pool of those tested. And so it's a very complicated formula, again, that, that the DOE has not been very transparent about. But do you have concerns about the, the, that there's not enough testing going on in schools? You know, it, it's one of those things that I sort of leave to the experts and the medical experts to make these decisions on whether it's enough or not enough. And, you know, we're hearing a lot of different things all over the place. But you're, you're absolutely right that it was sort of um, not very transparent to say we're doubling the number of testing and then and then find out later on how that formula was developed. What's really actually more concerning to me is is the surveillance testing that's happening in schools is uh, not coming back for two, three, or four days later. So if a child does test positive on Monday, you may not know until Friday anyway. That's the biggest concern. So although these, these rapid tests that they're distributing may not be as accurate as the PCR test, I actually think that they're doing a better job at finding students and, and staff members who may be positive and, and sort of isolating them from, from the rest of the group because the surveillance testing, it doesn't matter what percentage you do. If the students and the staff who are testing positive are staying in school for four days or so, you've defeated the purpose of, of isolating them uh, when you can. So, Yeah, that's true. Um, one of the things that people are also concerned about is that because the, the COVID testing for students is opt-in rather than opt-out, the pool of available students to be tested is very, very small. So what some other districts have done is um, either made that testing mandatory or made it opt out rather than opt in. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think, and and again, I I don't know all the legalities here, but I I think in order to do something like that, um, there would have to be a remote option available, right? So, so for people that, um, op, if, if, if you, if it's mandatory, first of all, um, mm-hmm. then you have the, the problem of you need a remote option for people that, that choose not to do it. If it's opt in rather than opt out, there is this tremendous piece of management on the principal's part, because now a student theoretically comes into school, they haven't opted out, but they say to the, the principal or the, to whoever's in charge there, well, my parent doesn't want me to do this. Right. Or worse than that, because if that happens, most likely the the child will be excluded and the phone call would be made to clarify. But worse than that is the child complies. And then the parent says, I did not want the child to do that. In fact, I sent in the opt out, but my child just didn't deliver it or it got lost or someone. So there's so many complicating factors there that I, I think the easiest way to do this would be if there was a remote option provided, it makes it much easier, which is sort of what we were doing last year where we had remote option and parents that refused the surveillance testing 
were able to be placed on remote learning. So we'll get to that a little bit um, later, but I also wanted to ask you about the situation room because you mentioned the delay in notification in terms of the test results, but then also the responsibilities that have devolved on principals to try to determine which kids have been exposed and which kids have not been exposed. And those that get exposed are supposed to get these home test kits, rapid test kits and test themselves at home. And the situation room was obviously overwhelmed before Christmas because there were so many cases being reported. And then the DOE said they were going to, I think, multiply times five or something, the number of people in the situation room to help with testing and tracing and help principals. And yet what I hear from the field is that it's still the principal's responsibility and they're getting very little help from the situation room. So what's your experience like? Yeah, I mean, look, when it comes to testing and tracing, no one is helping the principals. So let's be clear about that. The, the principals are doing the testing and the tracing. Um, and and prior to the holiday and when Omicron started to surge, yeah, the situation room was completely overwhelmed. Now, they, they've sort of changed things a little bit, right? So now when someone tests positive, you simply give a test kit to every student in that classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than having to do the test and trace. But what is, what's happening now and, and, and taking the same amount of time, if not more time from principals, is the, the situation room is conducting these investigations to see if the school needs to be closed or if there is a higher rate of transmission in the school than there is in the community and so on. And those investigations are taking an inordinate amount of time from the principals and the leaders because they get phone calls asking to talk through every positive case that's been called in. And we've getting reports that these phone calls are taking two to three hours oh my uh, God. for the investigative piece. So, so while they solved one problem, they just created another. So we, we need to work on that. So basically it's the principals are being deputized into the situation room and having to spend much of their time doing that work rather than the work that they ordinarily have to do. Look, w- one of the, um, jobs of a principal that really needs to be worked on uh, historically is principals are deputized to do everything and anything that comes their way. And especially when it's too difficult for someone else to solve, the the default has been let the principals do it. So in in order for education to start to, um, you know, turn around and and for this public school system to come back to the place that, that we really need it to be, People need to understand that principals either need additional resources in the school to help or they need things taken off their plate so that they can get back to what their primary function is. It's, it's to making sure students are safe and students are learning. Um, and, and that is something that we really need to address going forward. So we touched on this before, but I just really would like to hear your feelings about a real remote option, not this kind of asynchronous um, slapdash agreement, which is meaning that if if teachers and principals decide that it is appropriate and that they have the uh, time and the money to spend on um, allowing and giving asynchronous um, instruction to kids who are staying home for whatever reason, um, in addition to their normal duties, should there be a, a real separate remote option uh, for for kids who are staying home, meaning 
synchronous classroom instruction in a group the way there was last year? So, so first, let's just be clear that this uh, office hours piece, I don't think was ever designed to be called a remote option. It was designed to um, try to provide students with something while they were home, uh, recovering and and isolating with coronavirus or or, uh, in quarantine. But um, the piece about the remote option, this is something that really should have been available in September. And we were talking about this with the DOE from actually from last April and into the summertime, we were still expecting um, there to be some type of remote option for families. And it was probably sometime in late June or early July or or somewhere around there. I don't remember when when Mayor de Blasio announced that there would be no remote option. And and that sort of took us all all by surprise. Uh, when he did that, because the fa- there were many, many families saying we will not be sending our children to, into buildings because they didn't feel that it was uh, appropriate and, and the right thing to do. Now, in my opinion, if students aren't coming, it doesn't matter whether you agree with their reason or not agree with their reason. You need to find some way to provide them some instruction and, and some learning so that when they do come back, they are not too far behind. So we were all anticipating this option. Now, what we didn't want to see was a hybrid option. The hybrid option really did not work well last year. There weren't enough teachers to really um, provide for all modes of instruction. Uh, So we all agreed that we would not provide the hybrid. But Can you explain to to our listeners who might not know what the hybrid option means? Sure. The hybrid option is is something we did last year where students who elected to in-person learning would attend school a couple of days a week and learn remotely a couple of days a week, while another group of students had chosen to learn completely remote. So you had those students that were coming in a couple days a week and and learning at home a couple days a week, while other students were learning remotely. And that required additional teachers um, to provide the instruction and and too many additional teachers that we actually uh, had a shortage. So we all agreed that that would not be the case. And what we expected was a group of students that would learn remotely and another group of students that would learn in class, in school full time. Um, And then once we knew and principals knew which students they had that were going to do each, they could then program their schools accordingly. And we all also understood that that might result in certain breakage that would require an extra teacher, two extra teachers, and we would be able to know that ahead of time and either hire them or the district would pick up those students uh, in, in the remote instruction piece that way. So we really had a plan in place that would have taken time and programming and resources to put forward. Now we started the year scrapping that program and there is the call once again, and there has been actually throughout the year, but now that with the surge, the call came back a little bit stronger for a remote option. In order to provide that remote option and provide it well, there are lots of things that people need to understand. One is we need some time. Two is students that have a particular teacher right now may not have that same teacher when we, when we reprogram uh, for, for both options. Finally, there's certain um, you know, courses that you can't always find teachers for, and there's certain services that students have that we may not be able to provide by, you know, trying to flip to something mid-year. 
So it would be a very challenging and difficult thing to do, but it can be done. I just don't know if we're going to attempt it or not attempt it at this point. I've, I've been hearing different things th through the media, and, and I'm just not quite sure where we're at. Yeah, I've been hearing different things about that, too. And what David Banks, who is our new chancellor, of course, was talking about um, on Thursday when he had a discussion with the Chancellor's Parent Advisory Council, which we watched online, was that what he was pushing for was to negotiate with the union an agreement where there could be synchronous learning from the classroom for kids at home and in the classroom at the same time, um, streaming from the classroom. And from what I've heard, some teachers did that somewhat last year. Nobody liked it. Nobody thought it was certainly an ideal way to learn, either for the kids in school or the kids watching from home. But that was what they had in mind to put into effect quickly. And I wonder what your thoughts are about that particular mode of instruction. So, I mean, I, I think you said it accurately that remote instruction period is not ideal. Everyone in school together is, is the ideal situation and for, for a lot of reasons, social, emotional included. Um, but if there is going to be something done for children to learn from home and this becomes part of the agreement, uh, it's certainly better than no instruction at all uh, for those students. It also would allow, um, it, it, would, it would help significantly with the uh, programming issues I just spoke about a, a moment ago with trying to figure out teachers and so on and so forth. A couple of challenges here are that not all schools will have the bandwidth for every student, every classroom to be streaming live at the same time. That's certainly one thing. And then there are, you know, some other things to be worked out regarding, you know, teachers' ability to do both of these issues, both of these things at the same time whether or not there are any privacy concerns with, you know, who's at home watching kids, you know, if they're, if they're able to view the kids in the, in the classroom, there is some technology out there where the teacher can wear a little device and it sort of has like a, almost like a little GPS on it and the camera can follow the teacher around the room more so than focusing statically on, on students. But again, we don't have that technology in every place so it would require that as well. But it's certainly doable um, whether or not something like that would be worked out, I don't know. This is Lainey Hameson on Talk Out of School, WBAI-FM 99.5 and WBAI.org. And I'm here with Mark Canazaro, the head of the Union of Principals and Administrators in New York City. In general, what are your thoughts um, concerning our new mayor, Eric Adams, during his campaign he called for actually an expansion of summer school classes by putting up uh, for, uh, as, as many as 400 students in an online class with one teacher. He later renounced this and instead said he meant 40 kids in a class. More recently, he said he intended to build out one of the best remote learning processes in our country, but that he needed time to do so. Um, what do you think of his notion um, that even in a non-COVID time, uh, we should rely more on remote learning?
Mark, are you there? Mark, did I fall offline? I still seem to be connected. Uh, can you hear me? Hello, hello. Can you hear me? You're on the yes, air. Yes, you can. You are still on the air. Okay. Thank you, Sean. I guess Mark fell off. Um, can we try to reconnect him? And I will talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in our schools. Um, I will, uh, I'll text Mark and see if he can um, reconnect. One of the, one of the. Uh, He's connecting now. Okay, great. One of the questions I have is I'm very concerned about remote learning in general and worried that because of the COVID crisis, it will provide an excuse for people to permanently have a remote option for students. And that may not be the best thing for kids and for our schools. And so uh, during his campaign, Eric Adams was a big proponent of putting a lot of education online with very large classes, especially for summer school. And I'm just wondering um, what you, Mark, think about that potential option for our schools, even in a non-COVID era. Is that something that we should be moving to um, in our public schools? Well, thank you. And I'm sorry, sorry, I disconnected there for a second. So I got most of what you preamble. Um, well, I, listen, the, the mayor has also said he understands that students belong in school for, for a variety of reasons. I think that technology and, and online instruction has a place, and I think that it can be used um, for, for the greater good in a large degree. So we have certain um, schools and classes around the city where maybe there are four or five children in a particular school that are ready to take advanced calculus in a, in a high school, for example. And you may have those students throughout the city and learning in different schools. And there it might be advantageous to have an online course um, to, to bring some, some students in. Um, there are other times that we have groups of students that need to be home for medical purposes or, or other reasons um, for a period of time. And, and we should leverage technology to help those students. Um, whether or not there is, is room for a um, remote academy that students opt into that really, um, you know, can otherwise be in a classroom, I think that needs some further thought and discussion. But I, I still firmly believe for a variety of reasons, um, students need to be in a building with other students. There is the social and emotional piece there. I mean, we're, we're so connected now with social media and things that a, a lot of outside of school activities and interactions and socializations have been uh, limited uh, compared to what they had been, you know, in, in the past. So I, I think it's it's even more important now for, for kids to be together with other kids and in that learning environment. So um, I, I don't believe that it would be the right thing to do in mass, nor do I think that will happen. Okay. That's, that seems like a very, very reasonable response. I, I just worry that there are economic pressures as well as other pressures moving us more and more into remote instruction. And I hope that doesn't happen um, and is, is speeded up by this um, te hopefully temporary uh, pandemic. Um, 
Now, another complication that happened last week, which I really want to have your thoughts on, because I find it very concerning, is that for about a week or more, teachers have not been able to get into their uh, student information systems called scheduler or pupil path, which they use to record grades for assignments. They have their contact information with their students and families recorded there, as well as observations on their students' behavior and emotional condition, which then can be shared with counselors. And they've been locked out of these systems for about a week or 10 days. And now Schedula has a note up on their website saying there was an attempted security incident and they're doing an investigation while working with third-party forensic investigators. And some experts have speculated that there may have been a ransom attack, ransomware attack, which means that hackers hack into a system and then freeze it and ask for money in exchange for not uh, releasing the personal data of students and or unfreezing the system so that it can be used again by the schools. Um, Has DOE communicated anything more to principals as to what's going on with this? And how worried do you think parents should be about it? Well, no, they haven't communicated anything more. And and, um, I I don't know what has been breached and not breached. I'm reading the same reports you are. But I can tell you that um, schools are very concerned that, you know, this data and, you know, grades and, and things are lost or unavailable to them. Um, I did hear that there was some uh, restart of some of the data on, on a mobile app at one point, and then that, that um, shut down as well. So uh, folks are very concerned, and I don't know how concerned anyone should be regarding um, a data breach as far as other folks getting a hold of, of student data, because I, I just don't know any more than anyone else does. This has been pretty quiet, um, other than the fact that it's down and they're investigating. So uh, I'm, I'm really not 100% sure how to how to answer that question. This is Lainey Hampson, co-host of Talk Out of School on WBAI. I'm here with Mark Canazero, the head of the CSA, the Principals and Administrators Union. We'd like to invite callers to call in if you have questions or concerns that you would like to share with Mark. The number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. We're encouraging especially parents, students, and teachers and administrators in the New York City public schools to call in with their questions and concerns. But here is a question that a teacher tweeted this morning that and asked me to ask you about. Many teachers are upset about the fact that they are required to give lengthy online assessments that are called either iReady or MAP tests to their students this week, rather than engage them in real learning. This is one in a series of assessments that the DOE has now required of schools. In the words of of this teacher, students are being forced onto screens at schools versus enjoying high quality instruction and having fun exploring math and other subjects and helping their peers. It's all wrong. There are many parents and teachers who are upset that, especially during this um, time of disruptions, that so much class time is taken up with these online assessments. What are your thoughts? So, I mean, this is not a new uh, concern from people. 
regarding the amount of testing that that students have been put through over the last several years and the high stakes standardized tests, especially, you know, the, these tests are not, um, you know, exactly high stakes. Um, but, you know, look, th there is this idea of we're taking a lot of time away from student learning, and that's that's true and concerning. Then there is the competing factor of due to the pandemic that they're looking to try to find out where students are and, and judge you know, to the best of their ability, uh, this term they use called learning loss, and, and can you actually quantify it or not? Um, so I understand why they think they're doing it. But yeah, I mean, I sort of agree right now with everything that everyone has gone through with the current surge of Omicron, which couldn't have been predicted prior. Um, I, I don't find these things to be necessary. Um, but that's my personal opinion. And, and you know, the city and the Department of Education, they set the policy um, and, and that's where we're at. But um, I, I happen to agree that that we overdo it a bit with testing. And, and I certainly think that testing is important and it does provide us with some data that's important to look at and to use for further learning. But um, right right now is not the right time to be doing this, in my opinion. OK, we have some callers standing by. Let's get our first caller on the line. Caller, what's your name? Uh, where are you calling from? And what's your question or concern for Mark Canazara? Uh, my name is uh, Denise. I'm from Brooklyn. And, you know, I'm listening to you to uh, you, you and your guests. And what I hear more than anything else is the disempowerment of the teachers, the parents, and the public. It, um, I think this gentleman just said that we'll be the board decides what they're going to do with our children. Uh, the board decides what the teachers uh, should be doing when they're not uh, in the school setting. I think that what we're going to have to start to do is to get in touch. If you're, if you're a parent, I just retired, but if you're a parent and you can't uh, go to an assembly person, a council person, a district representative, we're going to have to start to get in touch with these people and have them represent us. Because what's going to happen if we're not careful, they will take our children out of our hands and be abusive with them. That's already happened with uh, the lack of retro, um, retrofitting the air ventilation and uh, uh, separating the children so they're six feet apart. This is the requirement that they said was necessary, but they did not give our children. I think we also need to look at what's really going on with these COVID inoculations. I don't understand how it's not going to interfere with the immune system. That's just a fundamental thing. Uh, the teachers, you guys are educated people. You some of you have a, a fundamental or basic understanding how the body works. Okay. Well, thank you for the thank you for those thoughts. I, I think that so far the evidence is that the the vaccines are quite safe and they're quite effective at preventing severe symptoms from COVID. I do think that uh, parents have been in touch with their elected representatives. There was a group letter by many legislators and council members saying that they thought uh, to the Department of Education asking for a remote option. And there was apparently a meeting earlier this week with more than 70 of them and the DOE um, where they expressed their opinion about this. Mark, have you been in touch with local electeds, either at the state or the city level, about your concerns? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that um, both parents groups as well as uh, union organizations and, and elected officials, uh, you know, they've all been able to 
to weigh in and, and make decisions. What I was referring to is, you know, once everybody has their um, opinions put out there and, and their their uh, thoughts, the policy is going to be set by the department and, and the city. And somebody does need to set policy or else we would have a lot of different policies happening at the same time. Um, but yeah, we, we've been able to do so. And, and I have to tell you that this administration has made it clear that they intend, and you know, it's very early on the administration, and, and I hope they, they are able to do this, but they intend to uh, even open up that more to listen to families and, and to others um, to get everyone's thoughts and opinions. So I, I'm, I'm really not uh, too worried that we'll be able to speak our mind because we always do. That's true. Um, this sort of brings up the issue of mayoral control, which is up for renewal or um, revision this spring. Um, I'm wondering um, if you have a position on that. One of the issues that we had with our last two mayors is that they did make a lot of decisions kind of unilaterally without a lot of collaboration and input from uh, teachers, uh, principals, and members of the community. So I'm wondering, does the CSA have a position on mayoral control? You know, we're, we're, we're going to form, we'll form an, an opinion again uh, going forward with, with some more ideas. But over, over the years we've had, we've been looking for some, some changes to the mayoral control law um, to, to do exactly what you said, to increase input of others in decision-making, um, to see some more localized control at the CEC level, which was the old school board level, um, and, and s some real, um, you know, teeth into some of those things. Um, and, and we're looking for the best way to do that with, without complicating things and, and actually, you know, making the solution worse, you know, so. So we have another caller on the line. Could you say your name, where you're from, and what your question or concern is? Hi, hi, Lainey. This is Jake. Uh, I teach in the Bronx. Um, and uh, um, my question was about um, the New York State Education Department. Um, they handed down um, instructions um, on July 29th that said all districts must prepare uh, for remote instruction in case of a public health emergency. Um, and I was wondering um, if New York City... Um, has done anything because, uh, you know, we might not be in the, you know, widespread public health emergency, but parents have decided not to send their kids in in mass. Um, in my school, our attendance has been about 70% in the last two weeks. Um, and it seems like that was mandated, but it seems like New York City doesn't have a plan. So is it is it that we didn't do anything? Mark, do you want to answer that? My feeling is that the public health emergency is supposed to be announced by the governor or something like that. I don't know whether the, the mayor has the authority as well to do it, but I think everybody's waiting for the governor to do it. And the governor has, has said that she's not going to announce a public health emergency. Is that your understanding, Mark? Yeah, well, what, what I think is that the governor was or the state was telling uh, systems and districts to prepare for a complete shutdown if that was going to be necessary, right? So um, if, if we were to shut down schools and go completely remote, that would actually be less of a lift 
than providing an option where some students are learning remotely and others are in school. So if we were to shift to a complete remote, which there is no indication that that is going to happen. So I, you know, this is just completely theoretical because I don't think that is going to happen. But if we were to do that, we would be better prepared than we were last March to do that because schools do have the capability to go online and teach remotely. Um, we would have to obviously make sure that all the students had the, the devices in their hands again, which most of them do, but perhaps not all. And we would have to prepare a couple of things, but we're much better prepared to do that than we are to do a partial um, you know, uh, remote where only some students choose remote. So, but would you be in favor of that at this point or not? You know, to, to go completely remote, um, no, I would not. I, and I'll tell you why. I think, I think that the Omicron surge is probably going to uh, continue to decline. And, and this is at least from what I, you know, again, I'm listening to the, the doctors tell me this because I'm no expert in this, but from what they've seen in, in other countries, uh, South Africa in particular, it seems that, you know, this thing came on very quickly and should decline just as rapidly. So I don't think we need to shut down completely. So we have another caller on the line. Um, caller, please say your name, where you're from, and what your question or concern is. Hello, is there a caller? Perhaps the caller's gone. We have um, two now. So... Uh, our new chancellor, David Banks, was a principal for many years. He is well known and respected, I think, among many educators. Um, do you have a relationship with him? And, and what, what's your view on what he's going to do? Yeah, first of all, yes, he is well known and, and well respected. And, and he and I have had many conversations. And um, I, I do believe that he is up to the task. You know, this is it's monumental, but I believe he's up to the task. Um, it, we also have to understand that, you know, today's January 15th and he became chancellor of this system on January 1st. So there hasn't been a heck of a lot of time to, you know, evaluate what's been done so far. Uh, so I think we just need to take him uh, at, at his word and, and what he has said so far. He plans on uh, making sure that decisions are made um, inclusively and, and hearing from, you know, a lot of different groups. Um, you know, he, he, has talked about uh, reading being one of his, his primary uh, focuses in early literacy. So um, I, I think, I think he'll be true to his word with, with those things. And I think, you know, well, time will tell uh, going forward for, for what other uh, plans he has, but um, you know, again, it's, it's far too early to, to make any type of, of judgment, but I am confident that he has the ability to do good things. Yeah, he did um, hold briefings with many different parent and advocacy groups before he took office, which I think is a good sign. And he seemed interested in what people had to say, which at least to, to me was a new experience since mayoral control. So I, I was hopeful because of that. Uh, we have uh, another caller on the line, apparently. Caller, please state your name, where you're from, and what your question or concern is. Hi, my name is Katie uh, from Queens. My concern is is pretty specific. Um, I just want to say I'm a big fan of both of your works. Uh, I'm a teacher, and my question is for Mark um, in regards to why is he allowing the in-school testing to go as it is 
as it currently stands, the schools that are being penalized the most are screened and specialized high schools because they have the highest vaccination numbers. Currently, um, at Bronx Science, there's 4% of the population unvaccinated. So when they come for testing, they just do 10% of that number times two. And at Francis Lewis High School, that's another school that's currently going through. They had 538 cases this week. Um, so it just seems to me that the principles of the specialized high schools that have high vaccination numbers are being penalized. And a lot of those kids are living in multi-generational homes in low-income areas and have people that are very vulnerable at home. And all of these cases are breakthroughs. So I'm wondering why we have not changed the formula yet from 10% of the unvaccinated population times two. Mark? So I, just to explain, um, yeah, so, so what she's referring to is the schools with the high vaccination rates have fewer students unvaccinated. So when they talk about 10% of the unvaccinated students, they come up with a number, and this was to your point earlier. So if 100 students are unvaccinated, and they're going up to 20%, 20%, so they're going to do 20 students of 100 unvaccinated, but then they put the entire pool in of vaccinated, unvaccinated students together, and then it, you know, it becomes a much smaller percentage of the overall school population. I mean, we've raised this concern. Um, you know, it, it's not that we weren't aware of it, and it's not that we haven't raised it. Uh, we have raised it. Uh, we would like to see it corrected. Uh, we believe that you know it would be it would be to the advantage everybody's advantage to have more students in the pool, and it would be to advantage to to test more students. You know, in general, if you're doing twenty percent of a school, you should be doing twenty percent, at least twenty percent of those uh, who have submitted consent to be tested. So, I mean, I agree with the caller, but it's it's not as simple as uh, whether the supervisors union is allowing it or not. Um, we've raised the concern, and we're hoping to to see some changes. Do you understand why the DOE is so um, reluctant to test more kids? Is it that they don't want to spend the money, they don't want to spend the time, um, or they really don't think that it's necessary? I think it's a capacity issue with the, the number of vendors that they have out there uh, doing surveillance testing. They're moving from school to school. And, um, you know, the more students that they test in one school, the more difficult it is to get to them to the next school. I think it's as simple as that. I don't find that to be necessarily an acceptable reason, but but I think that's the reason. Well, in Los Angeles, as some of our listeners know, they're testing all teachers and students every single week. There's no opt-out. There's no opt-in. Um, everyone gets tested. If you don't agree, then you go to remote learning, which is another issue altogether. Um, we but, have, but, but Lainey, remember, they have a remote learning option that, that yes, we don't they have, do. right? That's one. And, 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 look, the, and the other thing is, too, we, we, we also do have, it might not be as good as the surveillance testing in the PCR, but we also do have, when there is an infection, um, the, the at-home tests as well. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that that's uh, sufficient and that we shouldn't test more. I'm just putting it out there that what the facts are. Right. And, and you also pointed out earlier that even at, with limited testing, we don't get the results back in three or four days. If everybody was tested, it might take even longer and the whole point of it might be even less. So the capacity issue is important, but you would hope that after all this time, New York City would have more capacity for testing, especially for students where you are, uh, many of them as in, you know, Francis Lewis High School and, uh, 
Bronx, Brooklyn Tech, they're in extremely crowded conditions. These are extremely crowded high schools. Or many of our high schools are very overcrowded, as you know. I think Francis Lewis is the most overcrowded high school in the, in the city, and there is no social distancing to speak of. Um, we have one more caller standing by, I believe. Uh, caller, do you want to say your name, where you're from, and what your question or concern is? Sure. My name is Jose. I'm from Belleville, New Jersey. I, I have a problem with when we're talking about the educational system in this matter. If he gets no more than the teacher, the teacher is embarrassed to admit that the kid is asking the right question. Kids that has ADHD know more than the teachers. And when we ask questions, teachers do not want to be embarrassed, so they cannot tell the truth. I am a, a willing witness of that. My son took his life, ADHD, just like me. Because teachers cannot handle a kid asking questions that they don't know how to answer. And that is in, in, in the education has to do with the STEM and STEMA. STEM don't have art. STEMA has the art. We should drop the STEM and put the STEMA with the art. And that is somebody who doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he admitted it. That's why he's an addict, not a con artist like uh, Donald Trump. He's not an artist. He's a con artist. So so what's your question exactly? Could you rephrase your question? My question is like this. They are artists and they are con artists. Mr. Trump did not wrote that book. Shores did. He is not an artist. He's a con artist. Con artist is somebody who lies in front of us and get away with doing it. Okay, thank you. Did, did, did you, Mark, did you understand the question? Something? I, yeah, no, I'm not sure that there's a question there that, 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 that I'm aware of. Okay, um, I'm sorry. I, I didn't really understand. I think he was talking about kids with ADHD, but um, sorry about that. Uh, I, one of the one of the issues that I just think that um, it would be really interesting um, to to learn from David Banks, and I'm hoping to have him on the show later in the year, is what kind of autonomy he believes in should be engaged in by principals and, and, and teachers at the school or district level. And one of the things that we've always um, wrestled with in New York City, which is a huge system, um, is whether um, there should be autonomy or whether there should be strict guidelines coming from central DOE. And I think we've moved back and forth on that over the years. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are in general on that, Mark. Well, I could spend, we could do an hour show on this, Lainey. Um, so, so look, I, I mean, coming from the perspective, I, I was a school principal. Um, and what we have done for the past eight years is tried to make every decision for seventeen or 1,800 schools out of one office or city hall. And it doesn't work 
properly. Worse than that is anytime a principal or even a superintendent had a question or a concern or a need to deviate a little bit, by the time approval went up and down the chain, things had already been a little too late to make the adjustments they needed to make. I believe strongly that you need to pick leaders you trust and believe in. You need to let them make decisions that affect their schools. And of course, there are some limitations. You know, you can't, you can't just, you know, be a, a lone wolf out there making all sorts of different, uh, you know, policy decisions. But you need to be able to adjust to the needs of your school. You need to be able to, um, for example, get around a hiring freeze, get an exception to a hiring freeze very quickly by contacting your superintendent saying what the, what the issue is and getting a yes and no right there rather than, and I'll kick that up the chain. And by the time it gets back down the chain, there's two more questions that need to be asked. So autonomy needs to be put out there for principals and superintendents to make decisions based on an interpretation of policy that comes down or a need to sort of one-off a certain policy. Um, and then they need to be held accountable. If, if decisions are being made that, you know, are, are just not conducive to a, a sound education, well, then somebody needs to have that conversation. But when you're making a decision, most people are able to pretty easily give you the reasons and the sound reasons that they made that decision. So I am I'm all for more autonomy at the local level. Um, and of course, with oversight. Right. Well, one of the things that David Banks has said that he wants to get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy, the, the high level um, uh, deputy super, uh, uh, executive superintendents and, and that personnel level of personnel, which I guess slowed down decision making or, or at the at the upper levels in your experience or not. Would that make a big difference? <laughs> Well, look, the, the, the interesting thing here was they were designed and, and put in place theoretically to create more local decisions um, and, and, and speed things up, actually. Um, but really, the opposite effect happened because they were not empowered to the, to the level they needed to be empowered. You know, it, it, it wasn't a it, this is not a shot at any of them in particular. In fact, there were some very high level quality people placed in those positions. Um, it's just that that was just another step in the chain up and down mm -hmm. on the decision making process. And, and my feeling is the principal should be able to speak to the person making the decision. If they're not able to make the decision themselves, they need to speak to the person because there may need to be some back and forth with additional information before a final decision is made um, rather than, well, it came down from above. And no, you can't speak to that person that made that decision. So however it is that we do that. The principal needs a direct line to someone who could make a decision, make it quickly. And if it was, if it turns out to have been the wrong decision, well, we can, we can go back and look at that and adjust it later. But um, there's been way too much time uh, passes be between a, the time a question is asked and sometimes an important question and the decision getting back. So uh, we just need to cut out some of, some of that in the communication, in the communication chain. I want to thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today, and thank you for all your hard work for New York City children, always, but especially during these very turbulent times. Our show, Talk of, Out of School, is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you heard it through Apple, please leave a review, and please consider becoming a member of WBAI 
or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, you can call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. We need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. The rent for our transmitter on a building in Times Square alone costs $17,000 per month, and we need to raise at least that much just to keep going. There's no other show on the air that really delves into the issues and controversies affecting our public schools in New York City like this one. And so if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate to WBAI. Again, you can call 212-209-2950 or also easily donate online at WBAI.org. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful, be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Mark, again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practice.